And once again, let me say good morning and welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. It's good to see you. Glad that you're here. Especially if you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. You're our guest. And um, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And, and that's the last time that I'll get to say that. Um, there's so much that I could say. Um, but I'll just sum it up by saying thank you. Um, it has been an incredible and rich joy and real privilege to be one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Um, you have loved us, you've loved me, and you've encouraged me, and you've loved on our family, and we just can't say thank you enough. We love you. And I really, I, I believe this with all my heart, that if, if God has used me in any way among you in ministry, He's used you among me and my family a thousand times over uh, in ministry to us, and we thank you for that. Um, Like Tony said, we'll be around uh, through the end of May and looking forward to a little bit more runway that we have here um, until we take off to um, where the Lord is calling us next, in Birmingham with RUF at at Samford University. Um, But... So that means that in the next few weeks, we'd love to continue to, um, to be around you and with you, and, and we're just thankful for that. So, um, and it's just a real privilege to be able to preach uh, this morning. If I had the whole Bible to choose from to get to pick the sermon text for today, I just don't think I could have picked a better one than the one that we're in this morning in our series in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. It's printed in your bulletin. And in these four verses, Paul is going to take us by the hand and he's going to lead us all the way down into the very heart of the gospel. Paul takes us down into the heart of the gospel, though, by taking us in two different directions. He's going to take us all the way back and he's going to take us all the way forward. He takes us down into the heart of the gospel, first of all, by taking us into the past, a long, long time ago, before Genesis 3 in the fall, and even before Genesis 1, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, a long, long time ago when all that there was, was God. All that there was, was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in perfect, joyful harmony together. But what we're going to hear is that there was actually something else there. There was, there, there was the plan of God even from that time, to dwell forever in perfect, loving, joyful harmony with people like you and me. These verses reach all the way back then, but they also reach all the way forward into the future. They reach forward into the future to a time when God's perfect plan is complete and finished. They reach forward into a time when everything sad is untrue, when every wound is healed, when every grief is repaid, to a time in the future when we will spend the rest of eternity lost in wonder, love, and praise, and trying to wrap our minds around for an eternity just how good His plan was. These verses reach all the way forward into that future. So the Apostle Paul, he's taking us by the hand and he's leading us all the way down into the heart of the gospel by taking us all the way back, and by taking us all the way forward. But why is he doing that? 
It's so that we can live right now, in the present time, in light of those glorious realities. The Christian life is lived as a response to and in light of everything that God has already done and everything that God will do. Let's see how that's true. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. This is God's Word. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would send Your Spirit now to make much of Jesus in our hearts. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would become more believable and more beautiful in the eyes of our hearts as we dive down into the depths of the good news of the gospel this morning here in your word. And so, O Holy Spirit, take us there. And either for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning, let us respond to you in repentance and faith, in wonder and love and praise to the God who has saved us and is bringing us all the way home. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I think we can bottle up and summarize everything that Paul is saying here in these four verses with two statements. If, this, uh, if the gospel is like a coin, it's got two sides that we see here uh, in these four verses. Um, and so the gospel that, God, that Paul wants to take us deeper down into, it's a coin that's got two sides, and, and here they are. And there are two points this morning. Number one, in Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you. And then secondly, in Jesus, God doesn't withhold anything that is His from you. In Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that's yours against you. And in Jesus, God doesn't withhold anything that is His from you. Let's see how that's true. First of all, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you in Jesus. He writes in verse 7, in Him We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption, it's the idea of making a purchase with a price so that you become the rightful owner of whatever it is that you're purchasing. That's what redemption means. It's about a transaction, a trade, when someone says, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. Redemption involves the idea of deliverance, of something being set free, released from belonging to one rightful owner with a payment of a price in order to belong to a new rightful owner. And I just got to imagine that when Paul's original audience back then in the Greco-Roman world, when they heard Paul use this language of redemption, that what probably came to their minds, unfortunately, was the slave market, a common scene back in that day. Um, If a slave was to be set free, a price had to be paid. Deliverance had to be purchased with a price. And that purchase price could either be paid by the slave himself or someone who had saved up for it. 
But either way, a purchase had to be paid. And once that redemption price was paid, the relationship between that slave and the master was fundamentally and forever changed. They were set free. And so Paul employs that kind of language here, that kind of imagery, and he says that at the heart of the gospel is the good news that Jesus paid a price for you in order to set you free from what belongs to you. What belongs to you? Your guilt, your shame, your condemnation, and he purchased you for himself. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. At the heart of the gospel is the good news that a transaction has occurred. A purchase has taken place. His blood for our trespasses. His life for our guilt. In other words, what used to rightfully belong to you doesn't rightfully belong to you anymore. We used to be the rightful owner of our guilt. It had our name on the tag. I owned my shame. I owned my condemnation. But when Jesus paid the price with his blood, it changed ownership. You see, on the cross, Jesus became the rightful owner of your guilt. On the cross, Jesus became the rightful owner of your shame. It had your name on the tag, and he died under the weight of its condemnation because it was his. Think about it. That moment this last week that you're incredibly embarrassed about, or that moment last year or 10 years ago that just continues to haunt you today, or that series of tragic failures, or those thoughts in your heart that you secretly enjoy that if anybody else could see it, they would think there's no way you can be a Christian. And the shame and condemnation that accompanies those secret sins that kind of makes you wonder the same thing sometimes. All of that, your whole lifetime of falling short of the glory of God, all of it changed ownership on the cross. Your name was erased off of the tag and Jesus wrote his name on the tag and it became his. And he was crushed under the weight of it. All of what belongs to you became Jesus's. And he doesn't hold it against you because he held it against him on the cross. And you know what that means? It means that if God held what is yours against Jesus, then he will never hold it against you. Not a drop of it, ever. In Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you because he's already held it against Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's like Paul is saying here that, it's like he's saying there's two gladiators that are put in the, in the ring, his blood and your trespasses. And it's like, He's saying, okay, in the corner over here, we have Jesus' blood. In the corner over here, we have your sin. The bell goes off. What's going to happen? Paul would say it's not even a fair fight. <laughs> One drop of the precious blood of the Lamb of God is enough to obliterate forever all of your guilt, all of your shame. The fight's over. 
The blood wins, and your guilt doesn't survive it. In Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you because he's already held it against Jesus. That's the first big point here. The first side of this gospel coin that Paul wants to take us down deeper into the heart of. But before we move on to the second point, to the second side of the coin, I think we need to sit here for just a minute and just be honest about how hard it is to believe this. To just be honest about the fact that there may be a part of you that just doesn't really believe this. I mean, we might say we do. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you would intellectually assent to this. You would say on paper, yes, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But listen, somewhere down in your heart, somewhere down below the surface, there's a part of you that just doesn't really quite believe it yet, that God isn't holding anything against you. Your official theology might say, yes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But your everyday, unofficial, functional, real, lived out theology might be something like, I think there's just a little bit of condemnation left. You know, every week in here, we recite the Apostles' Creed that Christians throughout the ages for hundreds and thousands of years have recited together to affirm our faith. And there's a lot of mystery in it, isn't there? I mean, the incarnation, God becoming man. The Trinity, that God is three persons in one. There's a lot of mystery and things that are hard to kind of wrap your mind around in the Apostles' Creed. But you know what might be one of the hardest lines for you and I to believe sometimes? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I mean, did you wake up this morning really believing from the very bottom of your heart that Jesus is perfectly happy with you, that he's got nothing against you, and he couldn't wait for you to wake up? Do you really believe right now that God is holding none of your sin against you, that he's forgotten it, that it's gone, that he doesn't see your name on the tag anymore. You see, Paul wants to take us down deeper into the heart of the gospel here because he knows that there are places in my heart and places in yours where we really struggle to believe this, to believe that this is true. But friends, here's the good news of the gospel. God doesn't forgive you to the degree to which you believe that you're forgiven. And he doesn't forgive you to the degree to which you feel forgiven. In Jesus, God holds nothing that is yours against you. That's the first side of the gospel coin here that Paul is taking us down deeper into. And as if that wasn't good enough, (laughs) there's another side, and it's this. In Jesus, God doesn't withhold anything that is his from you. In Jesus, God withholds nothing that is his from you. Now, I know I said before this is a two-point sermon. I know coins only have two sides, but I kind of cheated a little bit. This point has two little subpoints. okay? So this side of the coin has two little other sides of the coin, okay? Here, here it is. There's two things that Paul wants us to realize that, God, that, that belong to God that he does not withhold from us in Jesus, and it's this. His delight 
and his designs. His delight and his designs. In Jesus, God does not withhold his delight from you. Verses 7 and 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Paul just goes over the top here. Notice Paul could have stayed kind of boring and dry and just said, according to his grace, which he gave us. He could have said that. But notice he says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. We've covered this recently in here, the idea that grace is not simply the idea of God withholding punishment and consequences that we deserve. It is about that, but there's more to it. It's not just about what God doesn't give to those that deserve it. It's also about what God does give to those that don't deserve it. In other words, grace is not simply when God doesn't give us his wrath, his punishment, when we do deserve it. It's when he does give us what we don't deserve, his smile, his favor, his love and acceptance, his delight. And here we're told that in Jesus, look, this is kind of jarring to say, but I think Paul would agree with it. God doesn't just give you his grace. He lavishes the riches of his grace on sinners saved by grace. That word lavish, it means to cause to overflow. It means to fill something to the brim and beyond, to hold nothing back, to go all in. Think about it like this. My kids love Nutella. You know what Nutella is. It's like peanut butter, except it's chocolate. I mean, y'all, it's like, like, to my kids, it is spreadable, pure 24-karat gold. I could give my kids a jar of Nutella for their birthday, and it would be the best birthday ever. Um, I mean, when my kids are making Nutella toast, they don't just put Nutella, toast, Nutella on their toast. They've never just put it on there. They lavish it on there. I mean, the whole thing. They empty the jar on that piece of toast. If they could, they drain the whole jar, every drop of it, because they love it. They love to eat a little bit of toast with their Nutella. That's how it goes with them. To them, they would never dream of leaving just a little bit behind. If you can have it, you put it on there. They spare none of it. They go all in. All of it. And y'all, that's how God is with his favor, with his love, with his delight to sinners that he saves by grace. God has never just shown you grace. He pours it out, unleashes the river of it, and does not withhold a drop of it. Here's another way of saying it. There are some things that God cannot do. God can do all things, but there are some things that he cannot do. He cannot be unfaithful. He cannot break his promises. He cannot sin. And he cannot be more delighted in you than he is right now in Jesus. There is no more delight left to give. He's gone all in. <laughs> and you know what that means? It means that God doesn't love you less right now than he did when he 
when Jesus died for you on the cross, his love hasn't diminished, it hasn't fluctuated, it hasn't changed. But y'all, it's easy to think that it does, isn't it? It's easy to believe that Jesus really loved me back then on the cross, and he really loved me when I was converted and I repented of my sins for the first time and believed. And he'll really love me again in heaven when I'm, when I'm not disappointing him all the time. But right now, when I'm struggling, struggling with sin and with doubt, right now when life hurts and you're angry about it, or you're sad, when you're anxious, when you're depressed, when God feels distant or absent altogether, I was talking with a friend a few days ago about a trip that they recently took to Disney World. My friend is in his early 40s probably. He has kids, uh, teenager and, and down, and Disney World is his favorite place on the planet. I mean, he loves it. Saves up for months for it so that, and he knows he's going to do this, so that he can go to Disney World and just blow it all. His words are, he hemorrhages money at Disney World. Doesn't think twice. It grows on trees. But you know, when they come home, back to real life, and he's in debt, and they have to eat rice and beans for the next few weeks and months, it feels like something's changed, right? You know, it's easy to think that God's delight in you is like that that he really loved you on the cross and he'll really love you again in heaven. But right now in the real world, the real world of your life and your trials and your unanswered questions and the things that are falling apart in your world, it can feel like something has changed. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God does not withhold his delight from you ever. None of it. The riches of his lavish delight are yours in Jesus, even if your experience of it changes. Even if your experience of it fluctuates, the reality of his delight and his smile in you never does. In Jesus, God doesn't withhold his delight from you. And secondly, lastly, in Jesus, God doesn't withhold his designs from you. In verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us that God, from the very beginning, even before Genesis 1-1, even before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before then there was a plan, a design, a purpose for the world that God was making. And in verse 10, he calls it a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, God has not been making this up as he goes along. And he's not just been responding to things coming out of nowhere and trying to make the best of it. This world and the story of this world is not a choose-your-own-adventure for God where he's not really sure what's going to happen or what's coming next. No, he says that the story of this world has been unfolding according to a set of blueprints that God designed a long time ago. Even before the apple in the garden even before he spoke light into existence, it was his will, his purpose, 
a plan for the fullness of time. And Paul's word here that he uses for purpose is elsewhere translated his goodwill. In other words, nobody forced him into it. He wasn't dragged into it, and he wasn't reluctant. He was eager and joyful. It was his goodwill to plan the story of the world that he designed. But look, here's the thing. For most of this story, as it's unfolded, the only one that's had access to what's really going on and how the story is going to end is God himself. Everyone else, especially the participants of the story, it's been a secret more or less, a mystery, something that it's hard to piece together. And we're talking about everything from Genesis 1 to the beginning of the Gospels in the New Testament. As the story of the world and God's redemptive purposes have unfolded, no one, not even the angels, have been able to say, I know exactly what God's doing and how he's going to do it. You see, the word that Paul uses here is mystery. To everyone else, including the participants of the story, it's been a mystery what God is up to. And this word mystery in the New Testament, it doesn't mean what we normally mean when we use the word mystery. Usually we use that word to refer to like a conundrum, something we can't figure out, but that if you're smart enough and you have enough time, uh, you can piece it together and figure out and solve the mystery, right? Like Sherlock Holmes does that. He's the great mystery detective who's just smarter than the rest that can piece together mysteries that nobody else can. But in the New Testament, mystery has a slightly different meaning. It means something that God knows that is impossible for you to piece together unless he tells you. It's a secret that you're on the outside of unless God lets you in. He has to reveal it. And here we're told that the whole story of the world, what God has been up to this whole time, his overall designs, his blueprint for reality, it's been a mystery. It's been unsolvable until Jesus There's this incredible little phrase in 1 Peter 1 where it's just almost like a little throwaway phrase that Peter writes where he's talking about the salvation that that, that played out in the Old Testament and the the prophets through the Holy Spirit prophesied about the salvation that was coming. And then just this little throwaway phrase, he says, that was something into which the angels longed to look. In other words, from Genesis 1 to Matthew chapter 1, even the angels in heaven couldn't fully piece together exactly what God was up to and how he was going to accomplish it. And you know what? It really threw them off when the God that they had spent so much time worshiping and glorifying and singing to in splendor and glory, when that God that had made them, when they watched him become something that he had made, and become a man of sorrows and enter into the brokenness and sadness and darkness of this life and then be hung up on a cross and nailed to it in defeat. Everybody was scratching their heads at that and the devil thought that he had won. Nobody saw it coming. It was a mystery. But Paul says it was the wisdom of God and the power of God the whole time. 
You see, Paul says that now in Jesus, he has made known to us the mystery of his, of his will. Jesus is God's way of letting us into the secret of his plan for the fullness of time. In Jesus, God shows us where this is all going. We can see the end of the road, the destination, even as we're traveling it. We can see the end of the story, even as it, as it still feels like the story is being written. And what is it? What is the secret? What's the mystery? Where is this all going in Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 10, he says, here's the plan. Here's the blueprint. Here's the design. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things united in Jesus. Heaven and earth brought together in Jesus. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer week after week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus taught us to pray for because he knew it was coming. You are praying for heaven to collide with earth in such a way that it doesn't crush it, but it renews it and makes it new again and whole and heals it. And God is saying, that's where this is going. I'm telegraphing the pass here. This whole time, ever since Genesis 1, I have set heaven on a collision course with earth, and it's been barreling towards earth this whole time, and nothing can throw it off course. God is saying, that's the plan. That's the design. That's where this is going. And I'm showing you how it's going to end. I'm, I'm letting you see the future even in the present. Here's what this is going to look like. This is what my kingdom, what it looks like when my kingdom comes and my will is done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what it looks like? Jesus. Jesus is the first installment of this plan coming to fruition. Jesus is the future coming into the present because Jesus is the king of the kingdom that's coming. The kingdom's coming, but the king has already come, and we know that the rest is going to come. We know that heaven that is barreling towards earth right now, it, it will arrive. How? Because it's already started to. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the first thing of heaven that has been united to things of earth. In a very real way, Jesus is the king of heaven who has come to become the dust of the earth. He's the God-man, the word become flesh. He has already started to unite heaven to earth. But you know, it's not just him, it's you too. You, believer in Jesus, have been united to Christ, union with him. And that means that you, the things of earth, have already started to, in the realest way possible, be united to heaven. What's to come has already started to come in him. And in you and me, God has already started to bring about his designs to unite heaven and earth. He's made known to us the mystery. He's let us in on the secret by coming himself. When Rebecca and I were dating back in college, um, we threw her an 80s-themed skate party. 
at the Oak Grove Skating Rink in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And it was not hard to throw an 80s-themed party there because nothing had changed since the 1980s. No one had touched it. Anyway, Rebecca was just finishing up her RUF internship at that time. Um, And so she had lots of past students, lots of present students, and we all got together, planned and designed a surprise party. And y'all, we executed the surprise flawlessly. She had no idea. It was amazing. But we had to plan it, right? Like surprise parties don't just happen. You got to design it. We had to plan ahead of time. We had to tell people to keep the secret. We had to buy the cake. We all had to dress up. We all had to keep the secret from her. And so on the day of the party, everything was going perfectly for us. Like the design was playing out amazingly. She had no idea. And everybody was showing up at the skating rink ahead of time. But you know, her experience of the design that we were, that was playing out wasn't really the same. She was utterly confused because she had made a lot of plans with these people, like coffees and like appointments and things like that that afternoon. They all suddenly got canceled. And suddenly it felt like people were avoiding her and not wanting to talk to her and not answering calls. Suddenly she couldn't make any, any kind of a point for that morning. She had a date with me that night, but like on the way to the date, I was like, babe, I'm sorry, I, I got something to drop off to a friend at the Oak Grove Skating Rink. And so we were late to the date, and she had no idea why we had to go to the skating rink. Anyway, the design was playing out perfectly, but her experience of the plan was very different. Now, how would it have changed her experience, though? in the midst of what was to her confusing, frustrating, maybe disappointing? How would it have changed her experience if in the midst of all of that, if I had stopped the car and said, Rebecca, surprise, and just given it away and told her what was coming? You know, for an 80s-themed surprise party, it probably would have spoiled the fun, right? You don't want to give that surprise away. But for an eternity in heaven, where everything is made new again, you can't ruin that surprise. And Jesus is God's way of letting us into that surprise, letting us into the party that's coming. He's telling us, this is what's ahead of you. And it's coming, and it's going to happen. And we have to know that now because our experience of God's design can sometimes hurt And we don't see all things in submission to him right now. And it can be easy to doubt that heaven will one day collide with earth. But that's where this is all going. Believer in Jesus, in him, God withholds nothing that is his from you, including his very future. He's given it all to you in Jesus. And it's all going to be worth it. You see, I think if I had spoiled the surprise for Rebecca that day, she would have said, okay, I can keep going. But Jesus is God's way of coming to you and saying, keep going. It's going to be worth it. You're going to dwell in a new heavens, in a new earth. And all things will be made new. Every tear will be dried. Every sorrow restored. 
Everything ruined and broken by the fall, healed and put back together again and glorified. And the party will never end. Everything that is his is yours in Jesus. May we continue to follow him. He spoiled the surprise. May we continue to follow him, looking to him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's plowing the way ahead, and he's already come. Heaven is on its way to collide with this earth, and you and this world will be made new again. Jesus has promised it, and it's already started. May he give us his lavish grace to continue to believe and to continue to follow him all the way home. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to pour out your lavish grace on us. As we hear this text and as we hear the sermon, it, if we're honest, there's still a part of us that says, I believe, help my unbelief. Or we think about our trials or the obstacles in our way. We want your kingdom to come and and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and yet we, we look inside of us and we look outside and we, and we see that that's just so far from happening. Lord Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you at work in us and in the world. Give us the grace to hold on to your promises and to trust that what you have started, which is uniting heaven to earth, that you will one day complete it and that we can trust that. We have your blood as a seal of it. Let us live now in light of that glorious future. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.